Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, that we might hear from you. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm not sure what you've been told about Lent. Uh, for many of you in this, in this room, this is your first time walking through the church calendar, walking through Lent. Uh, and again, I'm not sure what sort of uh, advice or, or words people have told you or taught you over the years, but my guess is that many of you are highly suspicious of this ancient practice, right? This is the kind of thing that you've been told to watch out for. Maybe you've been told that this is what people do when they're simply trying to earn their salvation or earn God's love. Maybe this is just one more extra unnecessary uh, ritual uh, that someone has told you about. Or maybe you're like one of my former colleagues who said, why would you want to think about sin so much? Hasn't Jesus already taken care of all of that? Well, none of these opinions are a proper understanding of what Lent actually entails. So Lent is a 40-day fast in preparation of the great Feast of Easter. And as I said at our Ash Wednesday service, if we never fast, then our feasting is hollow. Then our feasting is no different than the feasting that we see in the world that is mere indulgence. If we never fast, our feasting is hollow. And so this is a time in which we give some things up in order to gain focus of Jesus and his work on the cross. And even though we're, I was planning on saying this last week, but church kind of something happened then but i assure you there's still time to join into lent uh if, if you walked in this morning and you're like oh everything's purple it's lent now and you totally forgot until now there's still time to enter into this practice i assure you uh usually uh, people will give up something like maybe alcohol for lent or maybe some kind of food or maybe uh, they'll deactivate their social media accounts so if you haven't found something to give up during this season, I encourage you to chat with your friends, chat with your family on your way home, and maybe think about something uh, that you could uh, give up and enter into this ancient, ancient practice. Now this whole thing might sound rather daunting. Uh, maybe you've been learning more about Lent and the whole practice sounds very intimidating for you. But my prayer for you is that you would find this Lent to actually be a very liberating experience. They would bring some lightness to your soul. They would bring some encouragement to your soul during this season. That you would actually use this as a time to contemplate more the deep riches and goodness that there is to be found inside of God's beautiful grace. And I don't know about you, but this is exactly what I need right now during uh, this time, during this season. And as I was chatting with Molly about this sort of stuff, it we were reminded of a, a passage uh, from the message uh, that kind of captured what we think uh, God might be calling restoration to during this season of Lent. So this is uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting upon you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The phrase that jumped out uh, to me was that unforced rhythms of grace. And I hope that the liturgy, that this Lenten practice can be that for you. An unforced rhythm of grace. 
So for the next several weeks, let's watch Jesus more closely. Let's pay attention to the way in which he interacts with others and the way in which he interacts with devil that w- the devil that we'll look at uh, this morning. Let us keep company with Jesus and let us learn about his unforced rhythms of grace this Lent. So like I said this morning, we're going to be looking at the temptations of Christ from Luke's gospel. And I want us to look at this morning in particular who the devil is and how he attacks God's people. And I want us to watch and see how Jesus responds. And may we learn those unforced rhythms of grace that we see from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But first, a quick word on the devil himself. Maybe not such a quick word. There's, there's a lot to say, actually. <laughs> I'll be honest. It'll be relatively short today, but I do want to spend some time talking about the devil today. So it's common to read stories like this, these kinds of um, these temptations, and to think that the devil, the devil figure, is merely an allegorical kind of being. In fact, one commentary I read, the scholar said uh, that because the devil isn't actually described in physical form, that this whole thing is is just kind of a, a mind game that's going on inside Jesus's head, and that we should just read it you know, in this allegorical kind of sense. How sophisticated, right? How wonderful to think that way. How enlightened of a scholar to write that in a commentary somewhere. Because you see, uh, what, what he's basically expositing here is that all the world's problems can be solved through more education, better health care, more laws, things like that. Evil is merely a mind game. If they had only known better, they wouldn't have acted this way. Johnny wouldn't have acted out in this sort of way if I had given him this book or if I had sent him to this class or something like that. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I certainly think that education and medicine and, and government are worthy pursuits. Those are good things. And many of you are very involved in these areas, and that is good. Please keep doing that. Encourage your children to go into those areas. But uh, if we think that uh, evil can be eradicated simply by more education, more medicine, more laws, then we're fooling ourselves. You see, evil is not the lack of human progress. Evil is a powerful and personal presence. Evil is a powerful and personal presence. So a few years ago, uh, and some of you have been over to our home for a newcomer's dinner or maybe geeked out with us about Anglican history you know that there was a season in the Anglican Church of North America in which a lot of our churches were o- under the authority of foreign bishops. And the churches that Molly and I uh, were a part of during this time, it just so happened that our bishops were all Rwandan bishops. And this was a great season because these bishops would come over to America. You've got Africans over Americans, blacks over whites, poor over rich, and they would pour out their wisdom upon us. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time to hear them preaching and teaching. So one such bishop, John Rushahana is his name, uh, he came over and he preached at our church, and then a bunch of the seminarians were invited to kind of go into a room and and chat with Bishop John, which was one of the most terrifying and honoring experiences of my life. Um, Oh, I should also mention too that uh, a lot of these congregations during this time, they still maintain these relationships, so even though that season is done, these relationships still exist. But anyway, Bishop John came over, and one of my friends, who actually preached here a few uh, months ago, he said, Bishop John, what's, what's something that you notice about the American church that's different than the African church? What's something that's different? And Bishop John didn't even hesitate. 
He said, you all have no idea what evil is here. He says, you think you know what evil is, but you don't. You really don't. He says, you have no idea what evil is. And he told us a little bit more about the Rwandan genocide that happened in the 90s. One million people were murdered within a span of 100 days. And oftentimes it was the church who was complicit in this. Oftentimes it was pastors, guys like me, who would lead Tutsis into a church and then direct the officials to go and burn the church down. Awful, horrendous stuff. The death rate that was going on during the Rwandan genocide is actually six times the death rate of the Nazi concentration camps. Horrendous, profound, deep evil in a huge, huge sort of way. The Bible tells us the evil prowls around like a lion seeking to devour the weak. Some of you have seen this firsthand in your own lives. You know what this is like. Maybe there's a loved one in your life who you trusted, who acted in a way that was almost beyond human capacity. You could have swore that there was some sort of dark presence that was entangled in this person's actual actions. And because of that, you now walk with a limp throughout your life because of this, this wound that was inflicted upon you. So if you're here this morning and your worldview doesn't give some sort of personal reality to the nature of evil, then quite honestly, you're, you're not paying attention in this life. You don't really know what's going on. You're, you're not giving a full account of good and evil in this world. You're not paying attention or taking life seriously. So with all of that in mind, let's take a closer look at how the devil actually comes at Jesus. What sort of tricks he tries to employ to pull Jesus uh, off of his mission. Because these are tricks that the devil hasn't stopped trying out, to be honest. These are things that he still throws and lobs against God's people. Okay, so let's look at our passage a little more closely. So there's three temptations. And typically this passage, just so you know, that the temptations of Christ, these are typically read in the first week of Lent. And so this is a passage that we're going to return to quite a bit over the years. Because there's so much to be, to be mined in this passage. Um, and I'm not going to be able, obviously, to talk about everything. Uh, that's going on in here. But there are a few things that I want to point out to you. So the first temptation appeals to Jesus' appetite. Turn these stones into bread, the, de- the devil says. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, kind of a biblical number of wandering through the wilderness. And Jesus' stomach is growling, his lips are dry, his body is weak. And, Jesus, or, and the devil says to Jesus, Jesus, it's time to take care of yourself, man. You've been out here a long time. Turn these stones into bread. Let's push the pause button on God's agenda. Let's order some pizza, is what the devil's saying here. Feed your own appetite. In other words, use your power to get what you need now. Use your power to get what you need. Now, this is a temptation that we succumb to quite often, don't we? Oh, you're still hungry? Quick, go and indulge yourself right now. Oh, you're stressed? Quick, go grab a bottle right now. Oh, you're not sexually satisfied? Quick, click here, right now. This is something that our society drills into us quite a bit. Now, food, drink, and sex are not in and of themselves bad. In fact, they have their proper, when they're used in their proper place, they're a part of God's very good creation. But we fool ourselves if we think that a quick fix or reckless indulgence is God's best for us. Because friends, it is not. God's long game, the long plan, is what's best for us. This is why fasting can be so good, too. 
Because it's a time in which we put a pause on our own desires, sometimes good, sometimes, you know, usually you don't fast from, from sin. That's just something you should always be battling, right? But like chocolate or things. You know, so we're, we're putting a pause on some of our normal desires so that we can focus our hunger towards Christ. We let go of some things in order to pick up other things, other rhythms of grace that Jesus has for us. So Jesus refutes the devil by quoting scripture, by quoting from Deuteronomy. He says, man does not live upon bread alone. The first temptation. Amen, sister. Yeah. <laughs> so the second temptation, the devil takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in one glance. And he says, bow down to me and all of this can be yours right now. All the kingdoms of the world can be yours right now. Now don't forget where Jesus is heading, right? He's the son of God. He's the king of glory. He's the Lord of lords. He has all of this already. It's coming to him. But don't forget, his path to glory is through the cross. And the devil is saying to him, you can have all of this power without the cross. You can have all of this power right now, here, in this moment. You can have the kingdom without the cross. You can have power without perseverance. You can have success without sacrifice. Take this shortcut, Jesus, right now. There's so many things that we could say about this. I particularly think it's interesting that, that the devil has the authority to do this, that he actually has the kingdoms to hold over. We could spend a, a whole sermon just thinking about that and kind of seeing how that plays out in our own modern world right now, right? But Jesus responds a second time, quoting scripture to the devil. He says, I'm committed to God's plan only, and I will only worship God. The third temptation is perhaps the most dangerous. This is the one in which Jesus takes, or the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself from here. And God's going to send his angels and he's going to catch you. Do this. Prove to me that you really are the son of God. Essentially, this is a challenge to Jesus' own identity from the devil. The devil is saying, prove it. Prove to me, prove to yourself, prove to all the others in the country who, that you are who you say you are. And I think it's important to remember at this moment the passage that immediately precedes this one. So this passage comes immediately after Jesus' baptism. Jesus already had these blessed words spoken over him. You are my beloved son. And now the devil calls that into question. He calls into question the very love of God. Do you hear echoes of Eden in this passage too, in this question? Did God really say is basically what the devil is doing here. Did God really say you are his beloved son? So uh, in seminary, I, I, had, I had a pretty significant season of doubt, which many of you have been through seminary. You've studied theology, and you can kind of know how that, how that pops up during these uh, theological studies. And I remember having a, a conversation with a colleague from mine who wasn't a believer. We're having coffee, and we're talking about matters of faith. And there was just a little phrase that he said that was like a splinter in my brain. And, and it's almost as if that phrase he said kind of locked in all these doubts all at once. And it was kind of like, like the final straw that just broke open this dam. And it, it really wrecked me for a while. 
And I was, uh, I, f- I figured out what this phrase, where it came from. It was one of these um, famous atheist dudes, one of the, the there's like, four, anyway, there's like a four, the four uh, atheists of the apocalypse or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> it was one of them. And they said, and he said this really dumb phrase. I won't go into it now or else, you know, we'll be here. That's, uh, we'll, we'll do that over a beverage some other time. But anyway, I was watching all these YouTube videos and it just seemed to be like pushing down and down and down. During the season, I would also wake up Molly in the middle of the night and I'd, and I'd shake her and say, Molly, Molly, do you love me? Molly, what, is, is all of this worth pursuing, Molly? Is God even real? Which, by the way, if you're ever having like deep philosophical theological doubts, the nighttime is not the time to talk to your wife about these things. She would roll over and immediately start um, sleeping again. So, um. And then we would have awesome conversations later. She's a very sympathetic, <laughs> wonderful, amazing bride. <laughs> She put up with me, uh, still puts up with me quite a bit. So anyway, to have these huge doubts, and isn't it interesting that when we were on, um, when we were on God's track, when we were on his path, we have these, not just like second guesses of, of what we're doing, but it's almost as if something more profound and deep is shifting within us. Uh, it, it's as if there's something more evil and personal is speaking these words to us that can really dislodge where we are and where we're heading. And like I said, this, these are, this is a huge, dangerous attack. And many of you have probably heard this in your own prayer lives, right? This is a huge decision, or maybe you're about to embark on a, on a special calling. Maybe, maybe you get called to go into a church plant, and you're like, oh my goodness, does God really love me? What's God's mission all about? You know, so these things are often uh, in our heads. And here we see it again, where the devil says, did God really call you? Really? Really? And Jesus responds by quoting scripture again. He says, I know that God has called me, and I don't need to perform any stunts to prove it. That identity is lodged deep within Jesus Christ. So there's a pop star, uh, John Bellion. He's a complicated guy. There's a lot of rough edges to him. I'm not telling you to go and listen to all of his songs and think that these are lyrics that Rick Storrs is endorsing to everyone. So don't don't hear me there. Uh, listen to it if you're before you <laughs> share it with your children or whatever. But anyway, there's an interview uh, about how success has shaped him. John Bellion is his name. And when he was 22 or 23, he wrote this song. He's a songwriter called The Monster. And this was a song that was picked up by two of the biggest artists in the pop world, Eminem and Rihanna. I'm sure many people have heard of these two people, maybe. So, okay, great. So the monster was instantly a global hit. And John had artists, you know, rap, lining up, rapping around the block, wanting uh, him to write songs for them. And by all accounts, he was an extremely successful person. But John says that he still had a little bit of a hunger that was, lear- that was um, growing within him. He says, when I wrote the monster, and I, I thought that it would solve a lot of my problems. Finally, I had all the money in the bank. But I felt no different. I was still searching for something, he says. And then he kind of took note of how other massive artists were always reinventing themselves. He looked at artists like Madonna and Kanye and Michael Jackson even, who were always reinventing themselves over and over. And John notes, you know, in many ways, these folks had become slaves to the public, controlled by the constant demands to always be relevant. He says they were always trying to prove themselves. 
And he writes this, or these are the lyrics of one of his songs. Life became dangerous the day we all became famous. No one cares if you're happy just so long as you claim it. Molly was challenging me to sing that today, and I declined that challenge. But you can see the devil's temptations play out in the world like this in pretty significant, these sorts of questions, right? So later on in the interview, John says, you know, in thinking about these things, in thinking about the way in which people are always trying to prove themselves and succumbing to these temptations of the world, he says, this is why I became a Christian. He says, this is why I am now a child of God. He wanted to root his self, his identity, in something that was unchangeable, consistent, much larger than anything that he or society would be able to provide. And he's got this song called Stupid Deep, which I don't know if stupid is allowed in your household or not. But anyway, so these, these are some of the lines from this song. What if who I hoped to be was always me, and the love I fought to feel was always free? What, all the, what about all the things I've done were just attempts at earning love? Because this hole inside my heart is stupid deep. And he talks about this success. And he says, if all of this success goes away tomorrow, I won't have the proverbial rug uh, from under me drawn, pulled out. He says, I'll be taken care of because there's someone who loves me. Now, he's not a perfect person. He's not claiming to be a perfect person. But I hear this stuff. I hear this interview. I hear these lyrics. And I think that is someone who is trying to root their identity in Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful, good thing. He has faced many temptations to feed his appetite with fame and money. He's had opportunities to pursue quick fixes. He's been attempted to allow culture to define who he is, but instead has allowed himself to be loved by God and is now in Christ. He has true freedom. So friends, the work of the devil, the devil is powerful, and he is a personal presence. And he appeals to your appetite. He appeals to your calling. He, asks, he tries to get you to question your identity. But there's good, good news. Just as Jesus defeats the devil here, he ultimately defeats the devil at the cross. So my calling to you, my charge to you, is to place yourselves in Christ. Speak with him the words of Scripture that the, that the Spirit fills you with. Place your trust in him. Come and enter the church, which is the body of Christ. Come and gather with your fellow brothers and sisters and be fed and nourished with the scriptures and with the sacraments. Come and soak yourself in the word of God, experiencing the very victory of Jesus Christ. So when those temptations come your way, when the words are haunting you in the middle of the night and waking you up, may you be able to stand in Christ and declare the victory that you have in him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, your word tells us that the devil prowls around like a lion, seeking to devour those who are weak. I pray, Lord, that like your son, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with the, the words that were spoken over us at our baptism, that we belong to you, that we are loved by you. Fill us with your Holy Scriptures, Lord, so that when the devil comes knocking on our door, we can respond back with words that are given from you. Lord, I pray a blessing upon everyone who is here and their, their practice of Lent this year. May we truly be stepping into these unforced rhythms of grace in which we turn our focus and our hunger towards you and you alone. We ask this, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.